I'm going to say some things. Yes. And then I'm going to ask you some questions. And tone-wise... Fun. Fun. Is the tone. You want to talk about gas security and have fun. Yes. I'm, I'm game. I love it. All right, we're on it. Vans arrive at Moscow's embassy as 23 diplomats are expelled home. We're getting rid of 60 diplomats and we're closing down the consulate. Mr. Putin is already talking about repercussions. And the question really is not what he is threatening to put on us next, but how can we hold together? Russia's Vladimir Putin swept up 75% of the vote in his re-election. Are we in danger of falling into war by mistake? In the weeks after the beast from the east brought icy weather to Britain, relations with Russia have cooled for other reasons. A nerve agent attack on an ex-Russian spy and his daughter in Salisbury has led to a retaliation by the UK government, expelling diplomats and ramping up a war of words. Russia should go away and should shut up. Putin loyalists say his victory vindicates his tough stance towards the West. So, with Putin winning another huge election victory last week, some people are worried that we're entering a new Cold War. Keeping the lights and the heating on in the extreme weather, but only barely. With things getting chilly, our gas supplies have run low over the last few months. If you're at home, you should keep using your gas as you normally would. But the UK gas network is being pushed to its very limits. But what does that have to do with Russia? Could they switch off our gas? Have they done it to other countries? And if Russia does try to leave us out in the cold, how would we get by? This week, we're talking Russian gas on the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So with us to talk about Russian gas is Weekly Economics Podcast favourite, Dave Powell, who leads on the environment for the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Dave. I'm I your favourite. <laughs> no, no, I, no. <laughs> oh. No, yeah, Weekly Economics Given Podcast favourite, one of my top five. Thanks very much. Yeah. Hello, Asia. Hello, welcome. Uh, and we've also got a special guest this week, Policy Director for the Environmental Think Tank Green Alliance, Dustin Benton. Welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. Lovely, lovely to have you. Uh, okay, so first up, before we dive into gas, our usual headline segment, looking back at economic stories that listeners might have missed in recent times. So, Dustin, you're up first. Yeah, so this is this is quite a consequential one. I'm not sure whether your listeners will have uh, missed it, but Donald Trump has been talking about uh, trade policy, and um, Donald Trump likes to talk in bold, simple language, and so he's been talking and about 140 characters. Uh, ideally, yes, mm. uh, he's been talking about a reciprocal tax which he wants to put on American trade, and this is really interesting because the FT picked up on it to say that actually the geopolitics of trade will probably be shaped by Donald Trump's reciprocal tax idea and how Germany reacts. So if you're thinking about this from the UK's perspective in the context of Brexit, what's Britain's place in the world, all that kind of stuff, this idea that Donald Trump might essentially unpick the rules of the way we trade uh, by, for example, uh, taxing EU cars as much as cars from other places, that's really important. And I think everyone ought to really understand what's going on there because that will be a big force shaping the UK in the future. Okay, well, I feel quite, I feel quite relieved by that. I feel quite safe to know that we've got him at the helm. Uh, thanks for that, Dustin. Dave. Uh, yeah, mine's not quite at that sort of highbrow level. Okay, uh, but, right. okay. Uh, this is about Easter. Uh, which is a thing that's about to happen, I think, at least at the time of recording this podcast. Did you know, Aisha, there was, there was a survey done of, uh, it's not economics news at all, I suppose it kind of is, of how much of Easter eggs isn't egg. 
So, like, by which, like, what do you mean? I mean, weighing Easter eggs, the ten, the top ten most popular Easter eggs, and by weight, mm. what's your guess for like the the number one? How much of the weight of an Easter egg? The, like the top offender is mm. packaging. Packaging, okay. Weight. I was uh, that was the missing piece yeah, for me. Sorry, yes. Uh, what percentage is packaging? Fifty. Oh, Have I guessed too high? I'm ruining it. That's big. I'm going to go for lower. I'm going to go for. I'm going to go for thirty percent. So yeah, D- Dustin's right. Well, the, so the the Thornton's mm. classic large egg, which came out worst offender in a survey by Witch magazine, is thirty eight percent packaging. Wow. 38% packaging, closely followed by the Lint Lindor milk chocolate egg with truffles mm. and then some other ones as well. Point is, though, mm. right, um, I think you're going to see a lot more of this kind of thing as uh, we mm. are kind of get savvier about plastic and the more uh, sort of egregious uses of everyday wasteful plastic. You're just going to see loads and loads of this. And I think it's a great thing. And, you know, a lot of the companies have pointed out, yeah, but all of this packaging is recyclable, which is, you know, kind of true. Uh, but we don't ought to be using it in the first place. And I think it's a sort of underreported side effect of a lot of this stuff, like just how much of how much plastic is used to make small products look big. And I think that's a yeah, a thing we might see a lot more of. Okay, great. Good. Wonderful. I feel very well informed about that. Now I'm not sure where to buy which Easter eggs to buy though, if any. Maybe I'll just boycott it completely. Hmm. Lots to think about. Okay, so now for our big and actually relevant question, will Russia cut off our gas? Well, if Europe does not want this project to be implemented, we will redirect our energy resources to other regions of the world. We will just um, sell our uh, energy resources to other markets and Europe will not receive them in the necessary amounts. So this was the headline in the editorial of The Sun just a week and a half ago. We listened to the eco-fantasists over fracking and now we have hostile Russia heating our homes. The tabloids have been quick to panic over the prospect of Russia cutting off our gas supply in the wake of recent diplomatic clashes. And Russia has withheld gas in political disputes before. So, is the same likely to happen to us here in the UK? How much gas do we get from Russia anyway? And is fracking the answer to our energy security issues? So first up, a simple question for both of you, hopefully. How much gas do we actually get from Russia? Uh, not very much. Um, about less than one percent. We're done then. Should we yes. the pub? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's one of the great ironies of the whole thing. Uh, that you know, and, and Theresa May stood up in the House of Commons and said, "Oh, we're going to look at other ways of getting our gas other than Russia." Well, it's not hard because we got. Uh, it's significantly less than one percent, actually, yeah. at least historically. It's crept up a little bit. In recent months, there's a new uh, gas terminal has opened in Russia, which we've got three, possibly four, by the time people listen, shipments of liquid, uh, liquefied natural gas coming mm. into the UK, which is like frozen gas, basically, which you then um, unfreeze at the other end. Um, but it's not much, is the point. And so from the UK's point of view, at least, it's not going to be a colossal problem. And realistically, if the Russians... Um get surety, we'll just buy the gas from the Qataris. That's what we typically do. Both countries sell lots of gas, both stick it on ships. They sell kind of whoever's buying. And if Russia's not selling, then Qatar will be. And America's uh, increasingly getting into the business of exporting as well. So more and more likely to come from all that uh, gas that America's got, more of that's likely to end up here as well. So I think the point is, purely in the here and now, from a UK point of view, nothing really to worry about at the sort of day-to-day level from Russia and gas. 
Okay. So have have Russia got surety before then and cut off gas? Is that a tactic that they, they use? Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically, if you're attached by a pipeline to Russia, you should be concerned because the mm. Russians did shut off the gas, I believe, to the Ukraine as part of a political dispute. And uh, the Ukraine imports lots of gas from Russia. Uh, last time I checked in, it was about two thirds of the gas uh, in the Ukraine came from Russia. So that's mm. a big deal. I mean, there is a little bit of a tail risk for the UK here. And that's that imagine a kind of crazy world scenario where Putin goes mad and the EU gets angry and there's a big fight, hopefully not with guns. Uh, Putin cuts off Europe. Well, the UK receives about, I don't know, 7% of uh, gas from the Netherlands and Belgium put together via an interconnector. And they might want us to supply our gas to them if Putin has cut them off. So there's an indirect connection Mm. here. That's quite a low risk scenario, I'd suggest, high impact. It doesn't feel like the biggest problem in that scenario either, does it? Yeah. I mean, tanks in Eastern Europe is probably the bigger risk in that scenario, realistically. But there's a cost risk, right? So, you know, if Russia stops supplying, then prices will spike substantially and that will eventually be felt in consumer bills. Mm -hmm. So just out of interest, if we don't get the majority of our gas from Russia, where do we get it? Uh, Norway. Uh, Well, we get actually about sort of a third of our gas we make ourselves out of the North Sea. Mm. Good old British gas. Um, And yeah, you remember, yeah, Yeah, not the company. Uh, About a third of it comes in from Norway, actually a bit more than that. And then uh, other places. So yeah, historically there's a big gas field in the Netherlands, which is actually winding down. Uh, get some stuff from Belgium. There is no Belgian gas. That's the stuff that's coming from somewhere else via Belgium and Qatar on boats, um, historically. I mean, that's basically it, and some other countries as well. But overwhelmingly, I mean, if we're talking about a dispute with Norway, we're in trouble. Like, if we decide, if the boss of Norway decides uh, that he wants to cut off our gas, then we've got a problem. Uh, But in that's less of a concern. Yeah, we're cool with Norway, right? Yeah, Yeah, unless the whole fish thing just goes completely weird. Okay, well, fingers crossed it won't. All right, so some of the kind of uh, bubbling hysteria around the whole like Russia gas drama has called for some people to say that it's a good case for fracking in the UK um, so that we're not so dependent on other countries for our energy. And they, they argue that there's been an increase in the US um, and that's improved their energy security. So what would you both say about that? Uh, well, this is one of the things that it's quite annoying about this, the comparison with the USA. So I've, I've actually, I've come on here, God, when was it? Four or five months ago, something like that. We were talking about fracking mm. then. And people in the UK who are advocates of fracking point to the USA when, yeah, they've had absolutely loads of fracking, you know, and the gas that we might get over here from the USA on a boat could very well have come from fracked gas in, in America. But there's so many differences, starting from the fact that it, uh, the huge swathes of America are effectively empty. I mean, it's, it's the UK, as anyone can tell mm-hmm. by having a look around it, isn't. Um, and the, the geography is different. The regulus regime is different. And what we're seeing with fracking in the UK is just the sheer opposition to it is extraordinary. You know, wherever a fracking company is trying to get local permission to do fracking in the UK, it's getting resistance, it's getting local authorities going against it, it's getting delay after delay after delay. The finances of some fracking companies in the UK are really on the ropes. And the government's increasingly saying, rightly, well, you don't get to go ahead and frack unless you can show us that your finances are in order, which, you know, so far some of them haven't done. Um, And the upshot of all of this, in the UK, we still haven't had any fracking for about six or seven years. And the Cabinet Office, it was revealed last month, the Cabinet Office has secretly, without sort of telling the world about this, hugely downgraded its expectations of how much fracking we're actually going to have. 
in the UK. So the basic line, it, it's not going to be a substitute at all. You know, even if you've got a bit of fracking going, you'd have to have so much of it to make a sort of significant dent to the UK's energy security that it's not really worth thinking about. And the government is quite clear. The government itself came out uh, end of last year and said, uh, there is, we, don't, you know, we don't need fracking. There is no energy security thing that requires us to do fracking. The other thing to look at in fracking is that this is a big industrial process. So you've got to think, what does this mean? So when we looked at fracking, this is now quite a few years ago when fracking was at the height of its kind of excitement, um, we looked at how many drilling rigs were in the United States. And there have been between one and 2,000 operating in the United States for the last kind of decade or so. And then we looked at Europe. And across Europe, Europe has literally never had more than 200 rigs at any one time. That's conventional rather than fracking rigs, but they're close enough. Uh, and that was back in the mid-80s. So if you're, if you're going to imagine the industrial process required to make fracking happen at scale in the UK, you need to imagine thousands of drilling rigs, probably 30,000 wells being drilled in the UK. And if you do that really well in fracking terms, you get a kind of peak flow of gas around 2035, because it takes a while for fracking to start and then for the gas to flow and all of that. And the question that we kind of posed was, if we're worried about a short-term gas risk, will gas availability in 15 years' time do anything about it? And the answer we came to was, not really. Okay, so it sounds kind of like fracking is a no-go solution to this. It's kind of what I'm hearing. I'm seeing, I'm seeing some, some shaking heads, but that's what I'm getting. So if fracking isn't the answer, two-part question. First part is... Um, is energy security an, an issue in the UK? Is that something we should be concerned about, thinking about? That's the first part. I'll give you that, Dustin, and then we'll move on. So, I mean, <clears throat> the short answer is no, but uh, it, you kind of have to unpick what you mean by energy security. So it's useful to kind of distinguish between something that uh, geeks call resource adequacy, which is, do you have enough stuff to, and this is typically an electricity story rather than mm -hmm. a kind of just gas for heat kind of thing, but do you have enough stuff to burn or enough things that will burn it or enough wind turbines or whatever at any one time? And I mean, if you look at the UK's kind of policy answer to that, the capacity market, the price keeps falling. And that's a kind of economic indicator that says we don't need any more stuff because we're not, the market isn't demanding it. The other story is, do we have enough flexibility? So can we ramp up and ramp down either electricity or gas actually quickly enough to meet, thing, to meet the demand? And that's an area where um, right now we've got loads of flexibility in the system, but we're going to have to innovate to continue that in the future. Because as we add lots of very, very low-cost renewables to the system, we're going to have to make it move much more quickly than we have in the past. There are lots of good policy options for that. So the one that we think is going to be the most consequential in the next couple of years is electric vehicles, actually. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of roll forward, and we've just published a report saying that we should uh, have 100% EVs by 2030, uh, we think that's totally achievable, and we think it would do some really good things for the energy system. If you were to do that, you would have about 14 hours of economy-wide electricity storage distributed in batteries around the country. So that means you could literally stop every power station in the country for 14 hours and the lights would stay on for that period. That's a totally kind of crazy scenario that would never happen. But the point is for that short-term question and also for flexibly moving quickly, batteries can discharge and recharge very quickly. You've kind of solved that short-term flexibility challenge. The long-term challenge, which is about how much stuff do we have available, well, the sun shines, the wind blows, that's not going to stop. So there is a kind of good story on renewables on that front. Well, not that soon. 
I mean, in a disaster movie, it's probably going to happen quite soon. But, yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, and the, the other part of all that, that uh, Dustin's right to spell out the two parts of it. The third part is how much we use, mm. which is the other part of the equation. Uh, there was about 10 years ago when the financial crisis was really biting, there was a thing, a proposal for a thing called a Green New Deal, which basically would have ploughed huge amounts of public money at what was, you know, very low interest rates to insulate homes all over the country. So, you know, you create loads of jobs, you save loads of people money on their energy bills, you'd have to build fewer power stations, you have to import less gas. Now, we didn't do that. Um, if we had have done that, then, you know, that would have made some of these debates, you know, arguably even less relevant than they are. Now, we've said Russia is only 1% of UK gas. We could have cut the nation's gas usage by a considerable amount more than 1% if we'd got on with insulating homes properly all that time ago. So, And gas demand is falling quite sharply. The renewables are really starting to bite into our usage of gas for electricity. Um, and that's something, again, that we're going to see happening as well. So we shouldn't take it as a given that we need to use the same amount of energy that we've got now, nor that we're going to get it in the same way that we get it now. Let me just throw in some numbers because I did my homework for this podcast. Nice. Uh, so th during the beast from the east, mm -hmm. there was lots and lots of demand for all forms of energy, but the wind was blowing, blowing really hard, as anyone who stepped outside will know. That wind power that was being provided cut UK gas demand by 10% at the peak. And that's a huge difference in terms of that kind of how much gas can we get at the margin. On the kind of, if we insulate our homes, so the government is kind of promising that they're going to upgrade all of our homes by 2035. If they do that, we'd cut UK gas demand by about a quarter. And that would be a cost effective thing to do. Okay, so if, if Russia isn't really the big issue that we need to be talking about, that's kind of the red herring. Are there any other countries that, that we should be aware of when we're talking energy security? Yeah, definitely. I, I brought my handy dandy map. Courtesy oh, of a, this is a prop. He's got a prop. <coughs> this is a prop. I've Can got you a prop. hear it? Lovely listener. Um, I hold, hold the map up. Yeah, listener, I'm holding you. the map up. So, so <laughs> let me just describe the map for the listeners. This is a map of Europe with lots and lots of big pink lines on it on where all the gas kind of flows to. And you've got massive big pipes all coming from the north of Russia and basically flowing through all of Eastern Europe. And just to give some context on that, Bulgaria is 100% dependent on Russian gas. Estonia, Finland, Latvia... Lithuania, pretty much uh, same kind of 100% dependence. Further down the chain, you've got Slovakia and uh, the Czech Republic and Greece, which are in the 60s and 70s percent kind of thing. So if you are in the UK from a kind of Russian gas perspective, actually you're feeling pretty good compared to our, our friends in Eastern Europe. Uh, basically, the closer you are to Russia, mm. the more worried you are about Russia uh, turning off your gas. Mm. Germany are really interesting in all this. So uh, Mrs. Merkel has, after sort of about a decade of actively trying to get more Russian gas in, in the last few years, for fairly obvious reasons, she started to worry about diversification and they've started to build plants to get gas shipped in from other countries and that sort of thing. Um, and the politics of all of this, I mean, you know, that uh, obviously that's where we're at. The politics of oil and gas is fascinating. It, it, again, if, if we're going to act on climate change with anything like the rapidity that we think we need to, then some countries who, for whom oil and gas are just a phenomenal part of their budget, thinking about the Gulf states or Russia in this case, have got real problems to face, you know, and uh, there's no getting away from the raw geopolitics of it. Other, you know, it, it's heartening, I think, that Germany and France, or Germany in particular, added their voice in support of the UK on this, because it shows, I think, that they're getting ready to get off 
the Russian gas hook, or at least that they're prepared to make that stance. I don't know if Dustin knows more about that. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're talking about it, but the reality, unfortunately, isn't, isn't going in the right direction. So the EU as a whole raised its dependence on Russian gas by 8% in 2017. That's a big jump in just one year. About a third of the total gas supply for the EU currently, including the, the UK, is from Russia. So there is this kind of big gas challenge. But what's also interesting in thinking about the geopolitics of oil and gas is who's going to end up producing gas over over the long run. So my best guess is that countries where the state owns the oil and gas company and or resources will continue to produce for longer. If you're a company like Shell or or any of the, you know, BP or whatever, you don't have the same protection of the state. And as demand for gas disappears, that's what all the projections suggest. That's what we ought to do. It's the economically rational thing to do. It also is the climate sensible thing to do, which ought to matter. Um, then these countries are going to be held, holding on to gas revenues for as long as they possibly can. And if you're a, an independent oil and gas company, you're going to get squeezed out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts on gas and security and Russia and all those other exciting things, maybe Easter, before we move to our final segment? Well, it's a slight tangent, really. I, I was just struck by the very strong image that was it's about a month ago now where i don't know if you saw this dustin that for the first time a an unassisted tanker went across the arctic carrying in this case fossil fuels carrying gas from uh, Russia to France, in this case, um, actually South Korea to Russia to France. And it's the first time because of the weakening of the ice, plus, you know, bigger ships, because of that, actually, one of the great ironies is that fossil fuels, which have melted the Arctic and, you know, given us all of this crazy weather, that we're now actually able to go through the Arctic to transport mm. fossil fuels around faster. It's not particularly contributing to anything we've talked about other than I was just struck by the sort of terrible by the irony, irony of, of the whole thing. Um, and I hope... That's not too miserable a way to end. No, no. We've got a, a bit more of a miserable way to end coming up, so don't worry. You can, you can outdo yourself. Well, it's as usual, we like to end with, with either a utopia or a dystopia, and I'm going to go for dystopia this week. It feels quite appropriate. Uh, so we've talked a lot about energy security, geopolitics, and... As we've discussed, there's lots of places in the world where energy security is even more of a, of a pressing and, and vital issue than it is here. Um, so a big question, final question for you. Do you think that there will be wars over energy in the future? Uh, well, I mean, there have been wars, oh, wars over energy in the past. Do you past. think there'll be more wars over energy <clears throat> in the future? Uh, God. If you're a techno-utopian, then the answer is no. We've got plenty of renewable energy to be able to solve that kind of problem. Is that jargon? Does that just mean that you're someone who imagines a future with great tech shit in it? Yeah, basically. Cool. I mean, if, if you think iPhones are awesome and we're going to have an even better one next year, then we're all cool. Techno-utopians. Yeah, right? but if you're a bit dystopian, then mm. I'd point to the Middle East as a, a set of countries that have got massive dependence on oil and gas revenues and they've got to work really hard to diversify their economies. Otherwise, they're going to have to figure out how to base their society on on a heck of a lot less money. Wow. Yeah, I think the uh, one of the bits of the US that got this way before any of the rest of it was the US military. In fact, militaries in general have been quite ahead of this, of, of climate change stuff for quite a long time because they do things like they look at maps of where all the bits of the world where you know, a lot of people live and where a lot of the oil comes from and where a bit of climate stress could have a massive impact. And they see that they often sort of map on top of each other quite a lot. So we might see wars for energy but you know we're more likely to see them for water 
or for mm. land or for movement of people, which which climate change also mm. sort of affects. And it would be one of the great ironies if we were completely able to power the world 100% renewably, but we didn't because we couldn't sort out the politics of getting off oil. Um, but yeah, actually, I think the report came out just last week saying that actually the number of climate migrants we can expect to see is far higher than than estimates have, have previously have previously thought about so i think yeah energy is one part of it but it's it's all the rest of it it's it's the water and the land and people and yeah that uh cheery enough for you as a yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah i think that plus the eggs plus the imagery i'm feeling good yeah, yeah. very good a couple of shots Awesome. Thank you so much, Justin and Dave, for gassing away with me this week. Uh, We didn't have any puns. We didn't have any (laughs) puns. Um, It's been very enlightening. Uh, Did that one work? Lights? Uh, Kind of, yeah. Electricity, energy? I got it, I got it. Dave looks skeptical. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. Dave, we're not having you back. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, lovely listener. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with your mates. Our listening figures have gone up in recent weeks. I've been told. The producer is smiling at me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a grimace. Um, so thanks, everyone, for sharing on social media. And thank you to uh, everyone who's given us a great review. And if you haven't yet, why not start now? The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week. So one, one final announcement from us this week um, is that we've we've sadly lost the the light of our lives, uh, Hugh Hugh Jordan, who was yeah he was with us as a as a wonderful producer on the podcast for over 106 episodes. Um, he put in a lot of hours. Hey, that was Dave. No, I'm really sorry. I distanced myself from that. Part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we hardly knew Hugh, right? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) i'm so sorry Hugh, and and i'm sure you're listening to this and being very grateful that you're not in this room with us anymore Uh, we appreciate you and everything you've done for the podcast good luck